This morning's passage that we will be reading is uh, a, a collection of the, the trials of Jesus. And so as we are getting really close to ending our, our series in Matthew, we're looking at Matthew 26, the end of Matthew 26, 57 through 68. And then we'll pick up in Matthew 27, verses 11 through 26. And this pas- the, uh, the passage is also printed for you in your bulletins. So beginning at verse 57 of chapter 26, let's give our careful attention to the reading of God's word. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you, From now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he's uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, he deserves death. And they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him saying, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? Now Jesus stood before the governor, this is in Matthew 27, 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted, and they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream." Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. And Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And they all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? And they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be upon us and our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. This is the ending of of, uh, God's word. Please be seated. Let us pray. Lord, would the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you. Lord, as we uh, continue to read of 
uh, these, these final hours of, of Jesus' life uh, before he goes to the cross, Lord, would um, Jesus be big for us? And would we see the, the beauty and power and glory and necessity of that work for sinners? Lord, only you can uh, take this information and make it more than just head knowledge, but instead change our hearts and our wills and our desires, even by this word. Uh, we don't know how you do it, but you make promises that that's how you work. And so, Lord, would you be at work this morning? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. C.S. Lewis once wrote an essay entitled, God in the Dock. Uh, by dock, he's referring to like a courtroom where, especially in England at the time, the, uh, the accused, the defendant, would sit in a, an enclosed area, a box, which is called the dock. In God in the Dock, Lewis was getting at the following idea. He wrote, The ancient man approached God, or even the gods, as the accused person approaches his judge. For the modern man, the roles are reversed. He is the judge, and God is in the dock. The trial may even end in God's acquittal, but the important thing is that man is on the bench and God in the dock. Now Lewis is addressing the apologetic needs or context of his day. How do you communicate Christianity to 1950s Great Britain? How do you communicate the truths of the gospel to a people who think that they are standing in judgment of God? which he's suggesting wasn't always the case, and I think he's wrong on that. I think he's wrong on that. We can think of ancient Israel being delivered from Egypt. The Red Sea is still in the rearview mirror, and what are they doing? They're accusing God. But as much as maybe the human fallen condition, the sinful condition, is that we are always seeking to put God on trial, we know that at the end of the day, it's God who judges. It's God who rules with righteousness. This is one of the great themes of Scripture. It's one of the great hopes of God's people. We talk often about how we're all judges. Every human being is a judge. Every human being uh, assumes the role of someone that's condemning someone else. And so the great hope and promise is that there is one who is good and who is righteous who will right all wrongs. That's the hope of the psalmist. The Lord judges the peoples. God is a righteous judge. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is a judge. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. Or Isaiah 33, for the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king, he will save us. There are so many examples of passages celebrating this reality that God is the judge. And I couldn't help but think of those great celebrations, those great Cries of celebration as we marvel at the scene that we read in Matthew 26 and 27. Because here we have Jesus, the righteous one. Here Jesus, the judge, stands trial. God is literally in the dock. Jesus not only will undergo the judgment of God in the place of sinners, the craziest part about all of this, maybe, is that he will allow himself to be judged by sinners. It's a remarkable passage. It's a remarkable idea. It flips reality on its head. It just doesn't make sense. The judge is judged. And yet as Jesus is put on trial, two things stand out that we've been seeing, especially as we get nearer and nearer to the cross. One is that he is in complete control. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down. 
Even in this scene before us, he's in complete control. And secondly, things aren't quite as they appear, which means in this particular scene or scenes that we're looking at, as much as Jesus is on trial, so are his accusers. They're the ones who are actually standing trial. And when we read of Jesus on trial, make no mistake, we never come to this scene as disinterested observers because we are on trial. The readers of this passage are on trial. Whether you believe that Jesus is who he says he is, or you don't, or you are indifferent and don't really care, we are all on trial when we come to a passage like this. As you can see in your bulletins, I've entitled this message, Jesus on Trial, because I'm pretty creative. But just as we read together, you can see that Jesus isn't just in one trial, but he, he has what I'm calling at least three trials. He stands trial three times. So the first trial is before the high priest. The second trial is before Pilate. And then finally, Jesus stands trial before the people. And in each trial, even though Jesus barely speaks, we walk away grasping something essential about him, and then we see what that means for us. All right, so the first trial we'll look at is Jesus before the high priest. Jesus has been betrayed by Judas in the Garden of Gethsemane. His hands have been tied. He is bound. He is arrested. He is led to the, the temple, to the courtyard of the high priest. And what unfolds is, is a kangaroo court. Right? A kangaroo court is the idea of mob justice. They set up a mockery of a trial. It's a miscarriage of justice. This is a joke. There's nothing serious about the trial that's set up around Jesus. And we know this because of every circumstance that surrounds this trial. First of all, the timing is absurd. Uh, the consensus is that the trial probably started around 4 o'clock in the morning on Friday. How many legitimate trials begin at 4 o'clock in the morning? None. But that's not the point. The point's not to have a legitimate trial. So at 4 o'clock in the morning, everybody's up in the courtyard beginning this trial against Jesus. The timing is absurd. Secondly, the trial is a joke in terms of who is bringing the charges and why the charges are being brought against Jesus. You have Caiaphas, the high priest, and you assume Caiaphas has the other priests with him. You have the scribes. They're the Bible teachers and Bible scholars of the day. And then you have the elders. But it's more complicated than just these... Uh, uh, quote-unquote, pure religious authorities. Who were the elders? These were just the community leaders. Think of the like Chamber of Commerce. These were the movers and shakers of Jerusalem. These were the successful and wealthy men of Jerusalem. By the way, by this point in history, even the priests in charge mainly came from aristocratic families. And so the historian Josephus tells us Caiaphas bought the high priesthood from Herod. So Caiaphas is born with money, and he uses that money to buy power. And so what's the point of the trial? It's not justice. The point of the trial is for the powerful to keep their power. And this leads to a third reason why the trial is a joke. Verse 59. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none. Though many witnesses came forward. They aren't concerned with the truth at all. This, uh, this idea of seeking false testimony is, is really a clunky way of translating the idea. They're just looking for anything they can, they can pin on Jesus. They're looking for anything that will stick. And they're not having any success uh, until two witnesses come forward. They're not interested in, in keeping the law of God, even though that's maybe the pretense that they're operating under. They're willing to violate God's law in order to justify their very selective reading of God's law. 
But two come forward and they say, well, Jesus said that he was going to destroy the temple and then rebuild it in three days. Did Jesus say that? No. Not really. The closest thing that Jesus says, we have it in John 2, Jesus says, destroy this temple and in three days God will raise it up. But he was talking about himself. He's the temple. He is the true temple where humanity meets with God. He is the true temple where heaven and earth collide. He is the true temple where God's glory is found on earth. So everything that building the temple represented is fulfilled and exceeded in Jesus. He's the temple, but not to Caiaphas. Caiaphas' concern is the building. Did you say you're going to destroy this building? And it's more than just stone. It's more than just materials. The temple is the heart of Israel's history. It's their hope, their national identity, and their pride. And so to speak of destroying the temple is not merely sacrilegious. It's treasonous. So Caiaphas finally asks, are you the Messiah? And Jesus responds for the first time in verse 64 of chapter 26. You have said so. Your words. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Caiaphas is concerned about a Messiah who politically threatens him. And Jesus says, oh, this isn't about politics. This is about heavenly authority. He is the Son of Man. He is the one that Daniel the prophet foretold in Daniel 7 would receive all power and authority and dominion from the ancient of days, God the Father Almighty. And so Jesus stands before his accusers. His arms are bound. He will soon be slapped and spit upon. He will be mocked. He will be killed in the most shameful way that human beings ever have devised. And he says, but the next time you see me, I will be seated on the heavenly throne of glory. And Caiaphas loses his mind. He tears his robe. It's the most dramatic gesture you can imagine. Uh, Interestingly, there is one passage in Leviticus that forbids the priests from tearing their robe in a time of mourning or distress. So whatever that means, symbolically, Caiaphas loses it. He tears his robes and he says, what what do you all hear? This is blasphemy. Leviticus 24, blasphemy is a capital offense. Jesus has sealed his fate. I mentioned before that while Jesus allows himself to be put on trial, he's not the only one. The judges of Jesus are also placed on trial. And they will face a far more serious judgment than this joke of a court could provide. But that's not all. That's not really the message for us. The message for us is that we are placed on trial. And the question for us is, who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say Jesus is? For honest readers, if we take the words of Jesus seriously, there is no possibility of indifference or neutrality. If what he says is true, that's a really big deal. If what he says isn't true, that's also a really big deal. It's blasphemous. Because he's either merely a man claiming divine authority, and we have a lot to unpack there, or he actually is divine. If he is not worthy of of our lives, 
of our adoration, of our worship, that we should find all of our meaning and identity in Him, and anything else is, is wrong. Anything else is just, is just foolish. Um, either that is true, or He's worthy of our scorn and disgust. Or he's worthy of our sympathy and pity, right? Because he's either the con man, a megalomaniac, a manipulator. Think about how manipulative he would have been if he were not God. And he was sane. To receive the worship of Mary of Bethany with all that ointment and oil and perfume poured out on his feet. To rebuke the disciples. What a manipulator if he is not God. Or he's someone so to be pitied because he is so mentally ill. We've all walked down the Venice boardwalk and we've seen other claims of divinity. And the response, if you are a person with a conscience, is to have pity. And to be sad for that person to be claiming divinity. Who do you say Jesus is? We are on trial. Or he is who he says he is. He is the Christ who even now is reigning in eternal glory and will come again to judge the living and the dead. The council of the scribes and elders and priests, they render their judgment. He deserves death. Then they spit in his face. They strike him and they mock him. It's one of the great ironies of this scene is they belittle him. And as they belittle him, they are fulfilling prophecy. Because Isaiah says one will be provided and he will be despised and rejected by men. And he will be oppressed and afflicted. That's the first trial that gets everything underway. There's a second trial, Jesus before Pilate. See, Jesus undergoes the first trial. He's found guilty of blasphemy. That's a capital offense. But but keep in mind, it's more complicated than that because Israel's not some autonomous state that can carry out their own justice. Rome is in charge. And frankly, Rome's not too concerned with intramural theological debates on what makes blasphemy or not. And so what the Jewish leadership needs is they need to go have the Roman state buy into what they're doing so they can take care of Jesus, and that's where they go to Pontius Pilate. All of a sudden, we're introduced to a new character. He's an important character. Who was Pontius Pilate? He was a middle manager in the Roman bureaucracy. He was the governor of a, of a second, almost third-class Roman province. Nobody wanted to be stationed in Palestine. Nobody wanted to be stationed in Judea. Why not? Because it was an extremely volatile, tense region, which is fascinating, isn't it? Because what would we say about that region today? It's very volatile. It's very tense. It's also really far from home. And so hopefully you use this as a stepping stone to get closer to Rome. Hopefully you can use this as a stepping stone to get to modern day Spain or Italy or Turkey. But you don't want to be stuck here in the Middle East. We don't know much about Pilate other than his reputation was that everybody hated him. He was in charge for 10 years and then he was put into exile where he died. But we have this incredible scene. Why is it incredible? Because it may not seem like much. But it's a reminder that we don't confess ideas, but facts that we hold to be true and that happened in our world. These are very real trials that happened in this universe. And so every Sunday, we join countless Christians around the world by confessing the name of this middle manager, Pontius Pilate. Born of the Virgin Mary, he suffered under Pontius Pilate. Uh, one theologian famously said, Pilate enters the creed like a dog entering a nice room. I know that's more offensive to some of you than others. Pilate intrudes into the creed. 
because he reminds us of this concrete, historical, particular reality that Jesus suffered in this world. That's what Pontius Pilate means. This is no myth. This is no timeless truth. This is flesh and blood history. Ben Myers writes, All the mysteries of faith are rooted in the events of history. That is why one of history's villains, Pontius Pilate, lives in the memory of the church and will be confessed until the end of the world. All right, so the Jewish leaders come to this man, this guy who would be completely forgotten to history, Pontius Pilate, because they cannot execute someone on charges of blasphemy. They can't execute anyone. And so Matthew condenses the charge against Jesus that the Jewish leadership brings to him. He merely asks Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Do you hear the question? Do you hear the charge now being brought? It's not blasphemy anymore, is it? What is it? Sedition. Treason. Pilate's concern would be whether Jesus really was acting as a political rival. Was he a threat to the peace? Was he a threat to the political order? Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus responds again, you have said so. Your words. See, Jesus is king, but he's not the kind of king that Pilate thinks. Throughout his ministry, Jesus exhibited his kingly power, but he exhibited it not like the kings of the world exhibit. He didn't do it by showing his dominion like the rulers of the nations do. This king comes in a way that reverses the values of this world. He comes in weakness and service, not strength and force. His power is seen in that he comes to die as a ransom for many. And in this weakness, he comes with more power than we could imagine. He comes with kingly power that subjects the forces of nature to himself. He comes with kingly power in that he lays his life down in order for it to be taken up again. And he will come to judge all creation. Pilate is concerned about a potential political nuisance. And Jesus is king of kings who rules over heaven and earth to the ends of the earth eternally. Now you can sense Pilate's frustration. What time is it right now? Probably 6, 6.30 in the morning. He's got this angry mob out for Jesus' blood. Pilate just wants to understand what's going on. Do you claim to be king? Do you have anything to say? Don't you hear what they are accusing you of? And then in 2714, but Jesus gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Why is he not defending himself? That's the question. That's the question in the trial of Pilate. Why is he not defending himself? That's our question too. And the answer is that he did not defend himself so that he might defend us. It's that simple. It's that profound. In the first trial, we have to deliver the verdict on who Jesus is. In the second trial, we have to deliver the verdict. Why does he do what he does? Jesus was silent. Before the high priest, he could have denied, I never threatened to destroy the temple. Before Pilate, he could explain, I am not here to establish a geopolitical kingdom. But he does not answer a single charge because he stood trial for us. The innocent one stands in the place of the guilty. Jesus remained silent even as false charges were made against him so that he might stand condemned under our true charges. And under our guilt, Jesus took our guilt. 
He was silent before the seat of Pilate so that at the cross, before the throne of God, he could cry out, it is finished. Not just for himself, but for you and for me. Think of all of the ways that we justify our sins. All of the ways that that we uh, self-righteously grasp hold of any goodness we can find and we point our fingers at the sins of others and there is one who with full integrity and purity and goodness could point his finger and say guilty and yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shearers, he was silent so he opened not his mouth. We've seen Jesus before the high priest, Jesus before Pilate, and finally we have our third trial, Jesus before the people. Remember, Pilate from the beginning wants nothing to do with this trial. He wants nothing to do with the judgment of Jesus. And so we have this scene in 2715 where we're introduced to this tradition. Remember, Passover is, is the 4th of July and, and, and Christmas and Easter all wrapped up together for the, for the Jewish people. This is the highest holy day and it's the day to party as well. So certain celebratory things would be enacted. And so apparently one was enacted um, by the state to try to make everybody happy. There was a prisoner exchange, a prisoner release that would happen. And we have this notorious prisoner we're introduced to named Barabbas. And Barabbas provides a powerful parallel to Jesus. This is remarkable. First of all, they share a name, Barabbas and Jesus. It's more than likely that his first name was Jesus. Jesus Barabbas. Now, why do I say that? Most of the earliest manuscripts of the Gospels have his name being Jesus Barabbas. In verse 22, Pilate says, Who do you want, what do you want me to do with this Jesus called the Christ? You almost, it's a weird way of asking a question, isn't it? But it's as if he's pointing, right? What do you want me to do with this Jesus called the Christ? Keep in mind, Jesus, or Yeshua, was one of the most common first century Jewish names. And so what happened and we have external evidence for this, was it was likely that copyists, out of reverence for Christ, dropped Barabbas' first name, Jesus. Out of reverence, you couldn't have a criminal with the same name as Jesus. But of course you could. That's the point. Didn't he come to identify with sinners? Okay, so you have the personal name. I, I think it's likely they both are called Jesus. Even Barabbas makes our ears perk up. The name Bar Abbas in Aramaic, Bar is son, so son of Abbas, which sounds an awful lot like Bar Abba, son of the father. Two men named Jesus, two men that are sons of the father. Second of all, they both are ushering in kingdoms. Or at least in the case of Barabbas, he is trying to. Matthew says Barabbas was a notorious or, or popular prisoner. He was, more li- he was most likely like Robin Hood. He was a zealot, like in the technical sense. A Jewish revolutionary um, who, if found guilty of rebellious activity, would be crucified. Keep in mind, there are three crosses on Golgotha. Jesus dies on Barabbas' cross. It was all ready for him. And so the people chose a man they admired because he had not been afraid to use force against Rome. He was a brave patriot. He was a nationalist revolutionary. Perfect parallel, right? Two popular men, both named Jesus, both called sons of the Father. Which of the two holds the greatest promise for Israel's future? Pilate won't make a decision. His wife, we're told, had a dream, have nothing to do with Jesus, which, by the way, she's one more Gentile witness to the Messiah. Go back to Matthew, in the beginning of Matthew, the Gentiles, the Magi, 
right? Herod, the king of the Jews, wants to kill Jesus. The pagan astrologer, Magi, they come and worship the newborn king. Well, Pilate's wife fits right in with that testimony of the Gentile world. Have nothing to do with him. He's righteous. He's innocent. And so Pilate wants nothing to do with it. He says, who do you want me to release for you? And the people say, release Barabbas. And the call for Jesus is to be crucified. As long as we have been in Matthew, we've always had a distinction. Jesus has the religious authorities who are always antagonistic toward him. And then you have the crowds, and it's the crowds that he has compassion for. It's the crowds that he heals and he teaches and he ministers to. It's the crowd that only five days earlier sang, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord as he rides in on Jerusalem on a donkey. But now the crowds have turned. The fickleness of the human heart is on display. Jesus always demands a decision either for him or against him. Neutrality just isn't an option. Pilate washes his hands, not wanting to be responsible for innocent blood, and the people cry out, then let his blood be upon us and our children. And I have to point out, like this verse has been used to justify what is the greatest historical evil of Christianity which is anti-Jewish violence and persecution. That's a tragic, absurd takeaway from this. And one more example of of the self-righteousness that's just native to the human heart. With that being said, I do think this is a statement of judgment, not for generations and generations, but for the, for the, for the, the generations that are present and their children. Because in 40 years from this scene, they would follow leaders like Barabbas into battle, revolting against Rome, And the temple would be destroyed, Jerusalem would be conquered, and so many lives would be lost. They put their hope in the wrong Jesus. But the story of Barabbas is such a powerful story because it shows us the temptation for all of us to choose the Jesus we want. We'll sing hosannas when we think Jesus is going along with our program, and then we'll cry out, let him be crucified when he gets in our way. And this is our temptation in every age, to find a Jesus cast in our own image. And when we do that, it's always idolatry. And it's always a a reduplication, a replication of what we see here. We choose Barabbas any time we prefer a kingdom of earthly power and glory. We choose Barabbas when we want political power. Every time we see a cross at a political rally, we are seeing the spirit of Barabbas. When we demand a life free of suffering, we are calling out for Barabbas to be released. We choose Barabbas anytime we think there are some people who need the gospel more than I do. When we look at the world through the lens of the spirit of this age where everybody is either with me or against me, it's us versus them, and we lose the compassion that Jesus had for the world apart from him. We are calling out for Barabbas. When the sins of others are all we want to talk about, that's the spirit of Barabbas. Or conversely, when pursuing holiness just doesn't mean anything or means very little, that's the spirit of Barabbas. We choose Barabbas anytime we reject the way of Jesus and the fruit of the spirit because frankly, it just doesn't work and create the results we're looking for. And we choose Barabbas every time we leave Jesus to put our hope and peace and joy and identity in anything other than him, Jesus. As we conclude here, we're on trial. All of us are on trial. And my plea to you, um, 
I plead to you is don't leave indifferent. Don't leave here untouched. Jesus is not merely an option among others. He's, he's not just some moral guide or wise teacher we can either ignore or listen to. He's the king. He's the judge. He's the savior of sinners who know their need of him. The remarkable thing about Christianity being history, being a story, right? Not just bullet points of, 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 uh, of marching orders, but a story is how we read this and we find ourselves in these stories. And that's what we want to look at every single week. Are we the disciples who pledge our allegiance and then run? Are we Peter? So often we're Peter. And who are we in this passage? Oh, we're the crowd. We're the crowd. And yet, this isn't the story of a crowd who eventually come around to their senses. It's not even a crowd that universally is, is lost and condemned. Because this is a story about a Savior saving those who can't save themselves. So in Acts chapter 2, the Apostle Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost. The Spirit is poured out. And there's Peter, right? The rooster, if you remember last week. That's why he's given the message. And after giving a condensed kind of retelling of Old Testament history and saying, this Jesus is the son of David who is here, he says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed at the hands of lawless men. And when he was done preaching, we're told the crowd were cut to the heart. And they cried out, what do we do? What do we believe? And Peter Respond and repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Turn away from the Barabbases in your life and let the waters of judgment that drowned Jesus at the cross wash over you like a refreshing stream. See, we are the crowd, and that's just as much our message and our hope today. Because we are on trial. We are all, each of us, guilty in ourselves but the innocent one, Jesus, stood in our place, silent, absorbing our guilt. At the cross, undergoing the judgment that we deserve so that we might have life in him. And if that story is true, and if that story is our story, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but graciously gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? It's a rhetorical question. He does. Let's pray. Father, would we uh, respond to these trials of Jesus with the deepest gratitude? Because, Lord, if we were to stand trial by our own record, if we were to stand trial by our own actions, we, we would not be some uh, merely indifferent, neutral observer we would be those crying for you to be crucified. Because if Jesus is king, if Jesus is judge, if Jesus is Lord of all, uh, he demands everything. And, anyone, and any Lord that gets in the way of ourselves, uh, that, that, is, that is one to be done away with. That is one to see crucified. So Lord, would we... Uh, be so grateful for Jesus who stood in our place. Be grateful for Jesus who 
uh, stood trial for us, not, not defending himself, which he had every right to do. He had all of the integrity in the world to speak the truth of his good name. And yet for love and for us, he remained silent, bearing our guilt, bearing the charges that we deserved. And so, Lord, let us leave this place as we think back of the baptism this morning, to leave this place so grateful, um, so reoriented in our identities as those who are baptized, as those who uh, do receive the waters of baptism. It's just a, a refreshing spring and not the waters of judgment that Jesus underwent. Lord, we're grateful. Use this word to uh, get into our hearts and into our wills and into our desires to shape us more and more into the image of Jesus as you've promised to do by the power of your spirit. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.